over the last few weeks, I've been trying to stir our hearts and reawaken our love for the church. Not a building, not a denomination, not a certain ministry, but the beautiful, complex, diverse, global, eternal family of God, His church. In week one, we saw how the scripture describes the beauty of the church. And then in last week, we saw, and I hope we felt at the end of the service, the power and the potential that is in the collective worship of the church. Today, in light of everything that's going on in our world, we're going to focus on the future of the church. Anytime there is upheaval in the Middle East, especially when it involves Israel, people's interest in Bible prophecy is heightened. And because what's happening right now in Israel is unprecedented, that interest has reached a feverish pitch in the last four weeks. Since May the 14th, 1948, the day Israel gained statehood, people smarter than me have been drawing end-time prophecy charts, and a majority of them have had to redo them because they were wrong. So today I'm not going to focus on what everybody else is guessing about or speculating about. I'm going to focus on what we can know for sure. And here's what I can say with certainty. There is a hope-filled future for the church, for the people of God, that is absolutely unshakable, absolutely undeniable, and absolutely certain. Today we're going to talk about heaven. And I realize it's difficult for people to get interested in a sermon on heaven when they're having a hard time getting through the week. The sweet by and by for some people makes for really good song lyrics, but it's hard for them to even really get their head around when they're just trying to survive right now. But I think that's part of the problem. I don't think we really understand heaven. And what we believe about heaven is directly linked to our joy and contentment right now as we walk through a life of struggle and pain. If we could move past all the old myths and fairy tales and traditional misconceptions about heaven and come to a true biblical understanding of heaven, it would infuse us with a future-focused hope. Our present journey could be full of joy even though we suffer and life is full of pain. As a matter of fact, Scripture commands us to focus on heaven. You know, we have a saying in our world that so-and-so is too heavenly-minded to do any earthly good. Well, that's really not possible as it comes to the Scripture because the Bible tells us to be heavenly-minded. Paul writes in Colossians 3 verse 1, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And Paul is saying here in Colossians that Jesus and his dwelling place are our north star. Heaven is the true north on the compass of a believer's life. It guides us. Heaven becomes our frame of reference that gives us a hopeful perspective in a life of pain, sorrow, and suffering. The Apostle Peter, if you know anything about his writings, he wrote to a group of people who were facing unimaginable suffering and they were being horribly persecuted for their faith. And in the face of their suffering, Peter tells them to keep their attention focused on heaven. He says in 2 Timothy 3.13, but we are looking forward. In the light of our suffering, we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He, God, has promised a world filled with God's 
righteousness. Peter is referring to an entirely new universe, a whole new cosmos here. And we're told in the, in the very beginning of Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1 and 2. And then you fast forward to the very last two books, uh, last two chapters of your Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, and you see God recreating what he did in Genesis 1 and 2, a new heaven and a new earth. So God is completely restoring what sin destroyed. The paradise that was lost in the garden, by the time you get to the end of your Bible, has been completely restored. Eden is renewed in Revelation 21 and 22. Here's the problem. We're the people caught in between paradise lost and paradise restored. We live in the sin-cursed middle. But Revelation 22 tells us one day the curse of sin that has impacted the whole cosmos is going to be broken. Revelation 22 verse 3, no longer will there be a curse on anything for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there and His servants will worship Him. The promise of heaven is how we live here and now full of joy and expectancy. We can take the promise of heaven and front load those things into our lives today because if God is faithful and His word is integral and it is and He is, then we can pull hope from those future-focused promises to sustain us today. Most of us are familiar with Paul's promise, God's promise through Paul, that God will work all things together for the good of those that love him. This is what it says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's not just a little principle tucked away in one little verse in Romans chapter 8. That is the idea of the whole Bible And that verse and that theme points to the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. He has a plan and he's going to work it all out. And heaven is a part of that plan. But the promise of heaven isn't going to bring you joy in your present life if you don't believe in heaven. Or what is more common, you have a misconception about heaven. You don't understand what heaven really is. Because your idea about heaven has been informed by myths or legends or traditions or old tales instead of scripture. Myths and legends dominate what church people think about heaven because people spend more time getting familiar with their next vacation destination than they do investigating the reality and environment of their eternal destination. Here's what happens. You get ready to go on vacation. Uh, You do your background research. You read the reviews. You go to TripAdvisor. You post on social media where you're going because you want friends and people you know to to give you some feedback. You want to be as familiar as possible with your destination of choice. But too many Christians go through their entire lives and rarely even think about the place they're going to live for eternity, much less research scripture about it. God's word not only says we're going to have resurrected bodies, it tells us we're going to live in a renewed and resurrected world. And have you ever stopped really to think deeply about what that future world is going to be like? His word gives us a surprising number of details. And once we're informed about them, if we trust the integrity of God's promises, those promises infuse us with joy in the present because he promises us we are bound for the city of joy. Heaven is not just a destination, it is a motivation. 
The reality of heaven is a motivation for my hope and joy. The reality of heaven is a motivation for me to live a godly life. The reality of heaven is a motivation for me to share Jesus that, with the people that I love that are in my circle of life. So much of what God has in mind for heaven will be a mystery to us until we get there, but most of it's not. But there are some people who think that heaven is supposed to be a mystery, that we're really not supposed to spend a lot of time thinking about it or dwelling on it. And to reinforce that idea, they quote this verse. I would say they misquote this verse. 1 Corinthians 2.9 from Paul, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And because it's unimaginable, it is a mystery, we shouldn't dwell on it. But when they say that, they don't read the next verse. The next verse is verse 10. But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. The realities of heaven are most of which are not a mystery anymore because that mystery has been revealed to us by His Word. I've heard a lot of people ask over the years, but what are we going to do when we get to heaven? I mean, eternity is a long, long time. And some of us can't sit through a 60-minute church service without getting bored. You can't imagine what you're going to do for all of eternity. And I think that's the reason some people are not excited about heaven. They think all that heaven is going to be is some never-ending, boring church service. And that's not heaven at all. To answer the question, what are we going to do there? Let me point you back to a verse we just read, Revelation 22, verse 3. No longer will there be a curse on anything, for the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, listen to this, and His servants will worship Him. Focus in on that last phrase, his servants will worship him. That's the way it's translated in the New Living Translation. Most other translations translate it as his servants will serve him. That's the way the NIV says it, his servants will serve him. The Greek word there can be translated as either worship or serve. And we tend to think of those two words as opposite or different. They are not. They are synonyms here, especially when you think about what worship really is. And I think that's the problem. We don't really understand worship. We think worship is coming to church, singing some songs, praying some prayers. That's what worship is to us, but that's only a small part of what worship actually is. I worship God as I serve Him in my church life, in my work life, in my recreational life, in everything we do as we serve God. It is a life lived in worship to Him. Worship when understood accurately, is not a passive word. It involves action. It involves serving. And servants have things to do, places to go, people to see, and responsibilities to keep. It's why Paul wrote this. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, your whole life, whatever you're doing, whether you're mending fences or sowing crops or building buildings or writing songs, whatever you're doing is being done as an act of worship to God through the way you serve. This is so important to our understanding of heaven because of what the Bible says we're going to be doing in heaven. We are going to be worshiping Him forever as we serve Him, as we do things Heaven is going to be a place of productive activity that honors God. People have so many misconceptions about heaven. And I want you to listen to some of the real fears people have about heaven and eternal life. These are written by church people. Okay, One guy said this, When I was a boy, the thought of heaven used to frighten me more than the thought of hell. I pictured heaven as a place where time would be perpetual Sundays with perpetual services from which there would be no escape. Another lady wrote this, 
I've been a Christian since I was five. I'm married to a pastor. When I was seven, a teacher at my Christian school told me that I wouldn't know anyone or anything from earth. I was terrified of dying. I was never told any different by anyone. It's been really hard for me to advance in my Christian walk because of this fear of heaven and eternal life. One more. Whenever I think of heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the thought of endless, boring tedium. I'd rather be annihilated than spend an eternity like that. I mean, these are church people, Christian people that feel this way about heaven. And sadly, their responses represent far too many Christian people's idea about heaven. And the only reason they feel that way is because they don't really understand what the Bible actually says about heaven. To think about heaven as a boring place is to think about God as a boring God. And yet, He is the ultimate creator. He is anything but boring. There will be eternal boredom and infinite emptiness in one place, hell. But there will be eternal adventure and life and vibrancy and activity in heaven. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment about something that I referred to a moment ago. I I referred to this, let me say it in a different way. When we get to heaven, we will be redeemed people on a redeemed earth. Let me unpack that. When Jesus appeared to his disciples after Easter, okay, after his resurrection, in his resurrected body, he appears to his disciples. It freaked them out. It scared them. And this, notice what he said, Luke 24. Why are you frightened? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it is really me. Touch me and make sure that I am not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. Now, why is that so important? Because the resurrected body of Jesus is saying something to us about what our bodies are going to be like after the resurrection in heaven. We are told in the scripture that Jesus' resurrected body is a prototype. It is the first fruits that show what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. Which means we got to stop having this view that in heaven we're all going to be some disembodied spirit floating around like Casper the friendly ghost or some Cupid on a cloud strumming a harp for eternity bored out of our minds. It's one of the timeless tactics of our spiritual enemy. He wants you to think wrongly about God. And he wants you to think wrongly about heaven. That may seem like a small thing for you to have some far-fetched idea about heaven, but it's intentional. The enemy is trying to twist what we believe about heaven because if we don't understand the truth of heaven, if we don't see its promise, if we don't understand that heaven is the fulfillment of everything our heart wanted on this earth but could never really find, if we can't get excited about heaven's splendor and adventure, how would we ever have any hope past this meager life? And why would I ever be motivated to share the love of Christ with my friends? I mean, who wants to tell their friends to enter a relationship with Jesus so they can spend an eternal forever in a dull, boring place? Satan has a vested interest in all of our misconceptions about heaven. And the Bible tells us that. Listen to this. Scripture says that Satan's scheme is, number one, to blaspheme God, number two, to slander his name, and number three, and his dwelling place. Revelation 13, 6. He has an intentional strategy to blaspheme God's dwelling place, and in the process, he's trying to rob you of joy, assurance, promise, and hope. 
But in this conversation, we're trying to take that back because a better understanding of Scripture and the promise and realities of heaven restore back to us what the enemy is trying to steal. Listen to me. Heaven is going to be a real place of excitement and adventure. And one of the ways we know that is because in Revelation 21, when John is describing what he sees, he sees New Jerusalem is a city coming down from God out of heaven. Heaven for us is described as a city. You know what cities have? They have life. There is food and festivities and jobs and relationships and culture and arts and entertainment. Cities have life. Heaven is not going to be the end of living life, but the beginning of living life the way God originally intended for our life to be lived in a place that is finally made perfect. Everything... Everything in this world right now that is good, enjoyable, that is refreshing and fascinating and interesting, it all originates with God. Without God, there is nothing interesting. David wrote, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Believing that heaven is boring is a heresy that has its root in the idea that God is boring. There is no greater nonsense Our desire for pleasure, the experience of joy and adventure all come directly from God's hand. God is the one that designed us. He's the one that gave us our taste buds. He's the one that gave us our adrenaline glands. He's the one that gave us nerve endings that convey pleasure to our brains, our imaginations, our capacity to create and to to have joy and excitement are made by the very God we accuse of being boring. I mean, do we think we invented the idea of fun? One reason why people assume that heaven is boring, because their Christian life is boring. And you can't blame that on God. That's not God's fault. God is inviting every follower of Jesus to follow him into an adventure that will put you on life's edge. If we're experiencing the invigorating stirrings of God's spirit, challenging us from our comfort zones, trusting him to fill our day and our lives with divine appointments and regularly experiencing childlike joy because of his extravagant provision, then we know that the life of a Christ follower is full of excitement and wonder and adventure. And if it's supposed to be that way now, our minds cannot even imagine what heaven is going to be like. The God who created us to do good works. Ephesians 2.10, Paul said, he created you to do good works. So the God that created us to do good works is not going to abandon the purpose for which he created us after the resurrection. When we have our new body and we're in a new universe. Revelation 7.15 and Revelation 22 verse 3 tell us that we will continue to serve him in that purpose and in that passion for which he created us while we're in heaven. Heaven is not some eternal vacation. Remember this. There was work in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. God told Adam and Eve, I'm giving you this garden. I want you to work it, keep it, protect it. I want you to tend it, take care of it. That was work. But work was enjoyable and fulfilling and a part of their purpose that was an act of serving and worshiping God before the fall. When the fall came in, work became toil and it became burdensome and it feels today like it does for you every Monday morning because that wasn't the case before the fall. 
work in heaven is going to be like it was before the fall. It will not be frustrating and it will not be fruitless. It's going to be fulfilling. It's going to involve lasting accomplishments unhindered by decay and fatigue and it will be enhanced by unlimited resources. We're going to approach our work in heaven with the same enthusiasm that we bring to our favorite sports or hobbies today. And I do believe we'll have the chance to pursue our hobbies there. If you think life in God's universe will be boring, you're just not getting what the Bible says about it. I mean, imagine the flowers that botanists are going to study and enjoy. Imagine the animals that zoologists are going to research and enjoy. And imagine gifted astronomers in their resurrected bodies won't have to look through telescopes anymore. They will actually go from star system to star system and galaxy to galaxy studying the wonders of God's marvelous creation. A resurrected body on a resurrected earth will be anything but boring. Now think about how this accurate view of heaven, think about what that does to our idea of our bucket list. Hey, think about it. The term bucket list was popularized in 2007 by a movie of the same name. A bucket list is an inventory people take, it's the things they want to do before they kick the bucket, before they die. The idea is that since our time on earth is limited, if something is important for us to do, then we have to do it now because this is our only chance to do it. That makes sense from a naturalistic worldview, a view that doesn't recognize what the Bible says about heaven and eternity. It also makes sense to some religions who don't believe that in eternity or after death there's going to be any kind of physical property to you, that you're just going to be some soul or spirit floating around somewhere and that the future has no continuity with this life. The one worldview where the bucket list idea makes no sense is biblical Christianity. Now don't misunderstand me. I enjoy life. I enjoy adventure and going new places and doing new things. Matter of fact, For our 30th wedding anniversary, Haley and I just came back from an adventure trip that some people would call a bucket list trip. I don't believe that's wrong at all. It's not wrong to have a list of things that you would like to do before you get old or before you die, that if God gives you the resources and the strength, you're going to mark those off the list. But the bucket list mentality that says, this life is my only chance to enjoy adventure and fun, that is profoundly unbiblical. It disregards the teaching of the resurrection, of heaven, of eternity, and all the things we're going to enjoy while we're there. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is, when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh. But it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed by life. God himself has prepared us for this. And as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is heaven's deposit in your decaying body just to give you a foretaste of the eternal part of you that's going to live forever. So for the Christian, death is not the end of adventure. 
Death is our exit from a world where dream and adventures shrink and our entrance into a world where dreams and adventure is going to expand forever. I've stopped thinking about my earthly bucket list. There are a few things I want to do before I get old, but if I don't make them, I started moving them over to my post-resurrection bucket list. The things I want to do that I may not get to on this side of heaven. Joni Erickson Tata is a great follower of Jesus who teaches and writes. She hosts a radio show bound in her wheelchair. And Joni has a post-resurrection bucket list. She was injured in a swimming accident as a teenager. She's 74 now and for decades she has been confined to her wheelchair without mobility in her limbs. And she has a post-resurrection bucket list. And she said, I cannot wait until, quote, I run through the flowered meadows. That's her, that's her, I just want to run through the flowered meadows. That becomes more clear to you how significant that is to somebody whose limbs do not respond to thought when you spend a day with the kids in our special needs program that are bound because of physical abnormalities or developmental challenges. And I just can't imagine what a real understanding of heaven might do for those families and those kids. They're going to run through flowered meadows. Before we finish, let me point this out to you. Heaven is not a way out there thing in some galaxy far away. It's closer than you might think. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4.18, So we don't look at the troubles we can now see. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. Paul is talking about the unseen world around us. The presence of God, the angels, they're, they're here now. And if somehow God could open our eyes and remove the veil of our physical eyes and we could actually see in full faith, we would realize that there is more of heaven closer to us than what we actually think. There is a measure of the kingdom of God that is here now and it's going to come in a more physical way in the future. And I say all of that to make a point. Heaven is not completely unfamiliar to us. There is a measure of God's presence and heaven that is already here. We're not going up there somewhere to an unfamiliar place. Heaven is coming down to us. Listen to what Revelation 21 said again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Listen to this. Coming down from God. Coming down to us out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people He will live with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. The Bible says to live as Christ, to die as gain. It's one statement. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if I died today, right now, my spirit would go up there. I would be present with the Lord in my spirit. My body would remain in a grave. But it also promises there will be the resurrection where my physical body will be raised It will be changed, and my spirit will once again inhabit a renewed body that looks like Jesus' resurrected body. And that new body will be put in a new and perfect but familiar place as my eternal home. Heaven is coming down to us. It will be a redeemed, recreated, resurrected earth, totally made new. The best all this earth has to offer without sin, decay, and all the bad parts. And that's why a true biblical understanding of heaven changes everything about the way we view our future and it changes everything about the way we endure suffering because we have this very real future hope. Let me leave you with this. 
Florence Chadwick's a famous long-distance swimmer in the history of the U.S. She was one of the first to ever swim the English Channel both ways. In 1952, she tried to swim from Catalina Island off the coast of California to the California coast, mainland. It was 22 miles. About 15 miles into her swim, fog set in. She couldn't see the boats that were her safety boats going along beside her. It was so thick. She was ready to quit. And her mom was in one of the rescue boats and just said, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. You're close, you're close, you're close. She got to the point she couldn't swim anymore. And she just quit swimming. Before she drowned, they reached in and grabbed her and pulled her into the boat. The next day, she spoke to a reporter in an interview. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. So today, all I'm trying to do is help you see the shore. I'm trying to help you see through the fog of your life. Your troubles, your worry, your doubt, your depression, your health problems, your unemployment, your financial and family strife, your strained relationships, the death of people that you love. It creates all this fog and it blinds you from seeing the shore. I'm trying to help you see through that today just to get a glimpse of the shore. Because it's the shoreline of heaven that has encouraged the people of God through the ages and become their strength and perspective. The north star that has navigated their life, it has been their reference point. But if heaven falls off your radar, you won't know where you are. and You won't know where you're going. The Apostle Paul all kinds of hardships. He had been beaten and imprisoned. And from prison, he wrote this, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead, I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Paul said, I'm in a prison cell. I've been beaten. I'm about to be killed, martyred for my faith, but I, I see the shoreline and I'm pressing towards that. Florence Chadwick went two months later. She went back to Catalina Island to swim to the coast. A few miles into the race, fog set in just like it did in the past. This time she made it. They asked her when she was done, what was the difference between this time and the last time? She said, I had a vision of the shoreline and printed in my mind. And even though I couldn't see it, I knew it was there. And I just kept pressing for the mark, which is the same thing Paul was doing. And I'm challenging you, even if fog has overtaken your life, you have an unshakable undeniable, certain promise. And it's not a boring church service. It is an exhilarating adventure where you will serve Him in the city of God, the greatest creativity and resources you've ever known. For Christians, the shore is a person and a place. The person is Jesus and the place is heaven. And that's the future of the church. Would you stand with me all over this place today? I'm going to ask our prayer team if they would prepare to serve you. And while the prayer team comes to serve you, I'm going to dismiss all of those that are about to be baptized. If they want to go begin preparing themselves for baptism. And families that are here, we want to give you priority up front so that you are able to see your loved ones be baptized. Look, I'm going to pray with you today. And we're going to open these altars up for any prayer you might need. The Holy Spirit has been deposited in this room today. So there's a little heaven on earth to do some supernatural stuff in your life. And we're going to pray with you in faith if that happens. But if you don't have a ticket into that heavenly city, you don't get that ticket by going to church or being moral. You get that ticket by surrendering your life to Jesus. And it's not like one of the rides I knew the heartbreak in my kids when they would go up and stand by that measuring stick at Six Flags and they weren't, too, or they weren't tall enough and they got rejected. Well, in, in this thing, you don't get rejected because you don't measure up. 
You, you can be full of sin and just an addict and rejected by everybody. But if you come to him with an open heart, he will take you in and he will not reject you because of anything you've done, anywhere you've been. If you just say, Jesus, I want to give you me, all of me, my mess. Give him your life. That's what these people are doing today. They've given him their life and they're going public with their faith. You can do that today. You can walk in the same assurance that the rest of us walk in today that we have that hope, that future. If you want to talk to somebody about it, our team is here to pray with you, to talk with you. So Lord, I pray that heaven wouldn't become some fairy tale children's story, but it would be a real anchor to our faith. Don't let the enemy blaspheme your dwelling place in our life. But let it infuse us with hope. Father, I pray today that you will bless them and keep them, that you'll make your face shine down upon them, that you'll be gracious to them, that you'll turn your countenance their direction today, and that you will give them a greater sense of peace than ever before. In Jesus' name, amen.